You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. I am thankful that I'll be in the second service. Maybe by then I'll have the juice part open on my uh, communion cup. Not yet. Uh, but just thinking, even as I was struggling to get that open, how innovative people are and how grateful I am that people think about ways that we can continue to worship the Lord uh, with thoughtfulness of safety. You know, uh, that First Corinthians passage, the Apostle Paul, when he said to examine yourself, just as Jeff said, there were issues of fellowship. It was because people used to, um, the rich thought, oh, surely God has blessed us, but the poor, he has not blessed them. That's why they don't have any money. And so we cannot sin. If God is punishing them, how, be it far from us to try to bless them with food because we, have, we just have to affirm what God is doing. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's really not as far from what you hear today as you might think. So, in fact, up until that time, the Lord's Supper was taken just as a part of a meal. Don't know how or when they may have stopped and said, let's uh, now observe the, the, the Lord's Supper in this meal, and they would take bread, and they would take wine, and, and, and drink, and set it apart. They would uh, sanctify that portion of the meal with the words, the word of God. They would always repeat Jesus' words, just like Jeff did, just like we do. Um, so when we make adjustments on the word, and Paul, I'm sorry, I didn't finish that. Paul was saying, okay, since you can't seem to get this through your head, let's do the Lord's Supper separate from a meal so that you won't be tempted to discriminate against one another. And so there was adjustment. And there will be adjustment in the church as the years go by on any number of things as long as we do not deny or forsake the Word of God. So um, that was a little frustrating trying to get that juice open, but uh, I was thinking, of course, it's the day that I wore something white that that would happen, but I'll get it by the second service. Well, today marks the middle sermon of a five-week series titled, Time to Decide, Jesus or Self. As I mentioned, at least last week, maybe the week before, it's always time to decide. Today is the day of salvation. But this series is a call for the church to prepare for persecution, not because I am enamored of depressing thoughts, but because the signs of difficulty for God's people in our land are everywhere. And as a people who have been free all our lives, we may be unprepared for what may come, not definitely will come, but very well may come. You may not be aware of how much space in the New Testament is given to this topic. Again, a lot of times when things don't apply to us, we just kind of pass over. And say, oh, yeah, well, that's the way it was then. That's kind of not the way it is now. So I don't need to think about that too much. In preaching this series, neither I nor the elders mean to imply that all is dark and that we should feel hopeless, all contraire. <laughs> Absolutely, we of all people ought to be 
grateful that God has given us understanding of his word. It's not that we're smarter than anybody else. Just that the spirit has let us know the truth. And we as lights shining in a dark place are shining are uh, able to shine all the brighter as the darkness increases. But we know that the darkness hates the light and will seek to extinguish it. In Jesus, though, there is cause for great joy no matter our circumstances. So in the middle spot of this brief series, there are three truths that we would do well to remember. You, you'll be able to discuss these in home group if, you're in home, if your group is meeting uh, this week. Or you can write them down and discuss them with your family this week. I'm going to leave them up here. And I'm going to uh, say the verses that you see on the screen for those who may be listening via, via podcast. I'm not going to read them. I'm just going to give the references. First, God is sovereign and God is good. I used to, there was something that just didn't sit right with me. And look, a lot of you did it. I did the same thing. But it just, I just never felt really good about God is good all the time, all the time. God is good only because it, it seemed to promote a mindset that was a little bit flippant. I, 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 it just seems better to say God is sovereign. Everything that happens... God's hand is in it, and God is good. A lot of people get the first part and not the second, or they affirm the second but say, I'm not so sure about the first. So the verses for that, Genesis 50, 15 to 21, Joseph, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11, Ephesians 1, 11 to 14, Philippians 1, 12 through 14. So the first, God is sovereign and God is good. Second, to suffer persecution for Jesus' sake is worth the cost, is worth the price that you have to pay. Believe me, it is. Acts 5, 33 through 42, especially verses 40 to 42, they went out rejoicing, praising God that they had been counted worthy to suffer for his name. Philippians 3, 10. 2 Timothy 4, 16 to 18. Now, when we get to Philippians in a few weeks, the closer Paul gets to, to, to real suffering, the more joy he has. By the time we come to, to, to 2 Timothy 4, you see a lot more resolve than you do joy. He's committed. He's about to lose his head, and he knows it. He's going to be, he's going to be beheaded, and he's in an awful, awful place. But he keeps his wits about him. He tells Timothy, this is how the gospel needs to go forward. And I fought a good fight. I finished the race. And now is laid up for me a crown of glory. So I believe it's the crown of glory in that place. So 2 Timothy 2, uh, 4, 16 to 18. And then last, number three, <clears throat> suffering is almost always linked with glory in the New Testament. Romans 8, 18. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Paul talks about his light affliction. Then if you go over to 2 Corinthians 11, you'll see he was stoned three times, left for dead once, shipwrecked two or three times, beaten. Uh, on and on, Paul, uh, he was beaten several times, stoned and left for dead once. Um, but 
and Paul says these are but a light affliction because he had an eternal point of view. And then 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14, written to a people who truly were just about to experience persecution. In, in the last message of this series, two weeks from today, there will be a lot more about the joy of living for Jesus, even if we suffer because of our commitment to him. Over eight years ago, we began a sermon series in the book of Genesis that lasted for almost a year. And I remember thinking, wow, I, I'd heard this before, but I was thinking, wow, you really could see all of history sort of summarized in those 50 chapters of Genesis. But as time went on, you start thinking, wow, it's pretty, uh, pretty clear that you can find all of history in the first 11 chapters, Bert Wallace and I often talk about technology as a modern-day Tower of Babel. And then, finally, I, I concluded, you know, all of history is summarized in the first four chapters of Genesis. It would take a bit of time to recount all that happened in those first four chapters of Genesis, but for the purposes of today's message, which is titled Marriage by Design. We recall that Genesis gives an account of an ordered creation. God spoke creation into existence and he had it structured very orderly. And he also gave a creation mandate that includes marriage and procreation. Either we choose like Abel did in Genesis 4. To follow God's order and live in a manner that pleases him. Or like Cain, we seek to establish our own order. Maybe going so far as to silence any voices that promote God's ways, which are in opposition to man's ways. To find meaning within ourselves, though. If we're going to say that there is no order and there is no meaning to this universe... We must assume that the universe is accidental and that there is no authority outside ourselves. So here is perhaps a simpler way of saying what I have just said so far. Either God has authority over his creation or we are in control of ourselves and how the world should be structured. It's one or the other. If God truly exists and his creatures seek control over creation, then conflict between those who follow God and those who reject God in his ways is inevitable. Perhaps nowhere is this conflict more obvious than in the response to God's creation mandate for one man and one woman to marry, become one flesh, and have children. The New Testament makes it clear that not everyone is to marry. In fact, some are specifically chosen not to marry. But for the majority, God's will is marriage and populating the earth and advancing the kingdom of God. Today's text is Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. And I'm going to work through all 12 of these verses and address some of the issues uh, that we're going to be confronted with in our day as we are called to decide Jesus or self. But before we begin, would you please pray with me? 
Father, we are thankful for your word. Uh, we may see it now in ways that we have not seen it in the past. Far more, uh, you've got to choose one way or the other. We've known that to be true, but viscerally we experience that in these days. Well, we're just going to have to decide. We, we believe this is your word and this is your plan. Or these are just suggestions that have to be adjusted as the culture evolves, as the world evolves. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes and fill our hearts with the truth and give us a firm commitment to following you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, no standing today just because of, of time and the way we're going to attack this passage. Verses 22 to 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also... Wives should submit to their husbands. Wives should submit in everything to their husbands. You know, our culture is so committed to this idea that it seems fruitless to spend time here, right? That's just not necessary. Uh, it brings us to a crossroads, doesn't it? It's time to decide. Jesus or self? We could have said time to decide. Jesus or culture, or God's design for marriage, or the world's design for marriage. Submission does not mean the servile obedience of wives to husbands. Yes, husband. Yes, husband. I'll do whatever you say. That's not what he's talking about. Wives are to be submissive to their husbands, following the example of the, the church's submission to uh, to, to Jesus, but we don't do so well with that. But the church's example is Jesus being submissive to his father. Equal in every way. Jesus Christ co-equal, co-eternal. And yet, he was submissive to his father in all things. What does it look like in 21st century America for a wife to be submissive to her husband? Well, that's the wrong question, isn't it? If we're following the culture's ideas about marriage, then we have a whole different answer. But the better question is, what does a wife's submission to her husband in the 21st century church look like? Since we're limited by time, a simple acknowledgement of God's design, just to say, yes, I believe this, moves us a long way toward obedience. And while this is going to sound like a dodge, and it really, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm not averse to talking about that. It's just, it's just time. We will find a portion of the answer in the next six verses where the Apostle Paul spends twice as much time addressing husbands as he does wives. First, verses 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she may be holy and without blemish. What the apostle Paul said to wives was not radical in the first century. Wives, submit to your husbands. Everybody would have said, of course. What he said about husbands was radical. Husbands are responsible for their wives' spiritual growth, washing them in the water of God's word. They are responsible for the presentation of their wives before Jesus. Now think about this. I'm just now thinking about this, but <laughs> I know it's right. It's like you get to the judgment seat and the wife steps forward and he says, let's step back just a minute, sir, step up. It's that kind of responsibility. Husbands are going to give that sort of account. Shockingly to the original readers, husbands are to treat their wives as they treat their own bodies. Look, I always think about shaving. You know, how do you shave? Oh, yeah, well, a little blood. What's a little blood? No, you're, you know, you're really careful. Treat your wives with that kind of care. Verses 28 to 30. In the same way, he continues on the husbands. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Why is so much responsibility put on the husband? In Scripture, the leader is always more accountable than the follower. In fact, we pretty much think of that to be the case now, don't we? Furthermore, in a day where differences between men and women are mostly denied or ignored, it seems to me that in God's design, women are in general more responsive than men. Now, this is my observation, not absolute biblical truth. But if a man loves his wife as Christ loves the church, if he's dying to himself, if he's willing to die for her, a lot of women are going to be responsive to that sort of love. If a wife, on the other hand, submits to her husband, he may think, well, cool, that's good, and just go on living the way that he's been living. Now, that's 1 Peter 3 says, not, not so. Women, you win your husband by this quiet, godly demeanor. And surely that is true. And surely when women respect men, men are more responsive to them. But if it has to be one way or the other, typically the man is the one responsible for how the, the thing goes. Men, in God's design, what happens to your family is your responsibility. Now surely there are exceptions where the wife is unwilling to follow godly leadership, but it is more often a failure on the man's part to lead his wife and his family that is the cause of dysfunction. 
if your mind goes to, how dare you speak of a man leading his wife? Where are you taking your cues from? Culture or scripture? Time to decide. Husbands, I've been waiting a long time to say this, really, for the, just the right moment. And more will be said over, over time. Do not misuse biblical support for leadership as a weapon to beat down your wife. For many years, too many churches have treated abuse problems as if they were marriage problems. Oh, well, if you'll just love your, respect your husband like you're supposed to when the husband is a tyrant. If a man takes advantage of his position of authority and demands respect from his wife while exercising ridiculously unhealthy control and beating her down verbally and emotionally, physically is, the physical abuse is likely to come, but even the, the, the verbal and emotional abuse that is that bad, if that's happening, then we have a problem. Not your family has a problem. Our church has a problem, and we need to come alongside this wife and help in whatever ways we can, whatever ways we need to and whatever ways we can. What is at stake? The gospel itself. Probably never made this connection, but think about it in verses 31 to 33. Therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You know, once again, this is just that way that God has designed us. It, it, surely it goes both ways. Surely young wives and mothers are really connected to mama. But as often as not, it's the, it's the, it's the husband that's connected to mama. Leave your family. Take care of your own family. Put them ahead of your family, back home. We're all the way back to Genesis now. As the Apostle Paul affirms the creation mandate, God designed marriage between, to be between one man and one woman. He also said in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. And by citing these words from Genesis 2, that was in Genesis 1, but citing these words from Genesis 2, Paul would have expected his readers to know the larger context. And he implied all the truth about marriage from Genesis 1 and 2. The mystery of husband and wife becoming one flesh, according to design, is nothing less than a proclamation of the gospel. Because remember, it's the marriage that points to the real thing, of Christ in the church, not the idea of Christ in the church that points toward marriage. The real thing is Christ in the church. And what did he do for the church? He gave his life for her. To accept any structure of marriage or of two people becoming one flesh outside of marriage in opposition to God's design is to deny gospel. We think of the gospel as the plan of salvation that we take off the shelf, dust off, and present to lost people. No, the gospel is the whole thing. The gospel is the truth of God seeking sinful man 
through Christ and his willingness to die for us. Christ died for the church, cleansing her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present her spotless before the Lord. Now, what I'm about to say would have sounded ridiculous 20 years ago, but maybe not so ridiculous now. The church's commitment to the creation mandate of one man and one woman living together in marriage for the purpose of having children increasing increasing God's kingdom on the earth will be the ultimate test in the level of opposition we face from the world. Don't be distracted by all the other stuff going on. This is where it's going to be. Sink or swim. What do you believe about same-sex marriages or, for that matter, same-sex relationships? I'm not saying that same-sex sex attractions or temptations are of themselves sinful. But dwelling there, dwelling on those, those thoughts and acting on those impulses is sin according to Scripture. And look, there are plenty of heterosexual attractions and temptations that must be denied, and we must die to, lest they lead to equally sinful acts. But the Bible is clear about any sexual relationships outside of a marriage between one man and one woman, regardless of sexual orientation. The world wants to know, what do you believe about? What do you believe? Look, we ought to be celebrating God's design. The world is calling us to celebrate this other option. Is it any surprise that that's the case? We've got to celebrate one or the other. We apologize sometimes for God's design. Why do we do that? Maybe we don't believe, and we don't believe the gospel enough. Is it worth it? I mean, God's standard for marriage and our commitment to that may cause us to know the sting of dissent soon enough. Through most of history, the world has pretty much agreed with this. Not, Not all by any means. A lot of pagan activity through the years. But certainly in our nation's history, we have agreed with this. And some people decided to live apart from it. But... But now we are the minority. Is it worth it? Wouldn't it be easier to just get along? Go along? It is so worth following Jesus no matter the cost. One day at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we will rejoice in God's good plan and design for his people. I want to end our time by reading Revelation 19, verses 6 to 9, and then just a brief comment. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. No voices of opposition, only those crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. 
It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, made pure by the blood of the Lamb. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The true words of God. Do you believe that these are the true words of God? I do. And I am confident that most of you do as well. If your hope is in politics, I've got bad news. Your efforts are not going to amount to much. If your hope is in Jesus, well, the world cannot contain this good news. Just can't contain it. What is the best way for us to impact the world with the gospel when the world does not want us to hear about or not, not want us to talk about the gospel? Maybe the best way to point to Jesus is to work at having the best marriages we can possibly have. Following God's design in Ephesians 5 that really connects with a lot of what Jesus said, what God said in Genesis and all over the Old Testament. Solid marriages are attractive to the world because they are so rare. A biblically structured marriage that is, that is thriving is a living testimony to the truth of the gospel. How is that so? Because Jesus died for the church and gave himself for her. And those who believe in Jesus will one day be gathered to the marriage supper of the Lamb. No wonder we will say, Hallelujah. And all God's people said, Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.